the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering Today's program. Today in the five o'clock hour, looking forward to a conversation with Tim Byrne. He is an urban missionary in the, the strictest uh, understanding of that word, raises his own um, support and so on. He's a pastor, an itinerant evangelist. He's a skateboarder, and he uh, is associated with Skate Church. He does the high school. He's a leader uh, there. We're going to talk about this ministry that's doing extraordinary things with a population that might otherwise just be completely overlooked. I love the creative, innovative ministry that uses whatever your gifting happens to be, and in this case, it's skateboarding. Now, who would ever connect skateboarding having a talent and ability in that area to the gospel and people are coming to faith in Christ, primarily young, uh, young people. We're talking about kids as well as young adults. So anyway, we're going to talk about skate church and would really encourage you to make note, to make a commitment to pray for this ministry, considering, consider sponsoring them financially and supporting them in other ways. So that's coming up in the five o'clock hour. And I'm looking forward to sharing that conversation Uh, With you. First, we'll take a look at some of the headlines. A New York federal judge barred the Justice Department uh, yesterday from changing its lawyers in a legal fight over the Trump administration's effort to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. The U.S. District Judge Jesse Furman, an Obama appointee, you know, I'm always reluctant to mention who appointed the judge because presumably a judge is an impartial. arbiter over uh, disputes. So uh, the fact that he was an Obama appointee, sadly, probably means more than it should. Anyway, uh, he said government lawyers motion for the change was patently deficient, except in the case of two lawyers who've already left the department or the civil division, which is handling the case. Well, the president lashed out at the ruling. No surprise there. He did it on Twitter, writing. So now the Obama appointed judge on the census case, are you a citizen of the United States, won't let the Justice Department use the lawyers that it wants to use. Could this be a first? So what's next? The president has indicated in the past week that he would use his executive power to add the question to the census. And I'm looking for a story I intended to share later in the program. Um, here it is. Um, a survey. The majority of Hispanic voters approve a citizenship question on the U.S. census. Two thirds of voters approve the citizenship question. And that includes a majority of Hispanic voters, despite claims Uh, that the inquiry would discourage participation in Latino communities. A Harvard University Center for American Political Studies Harris poll found that 67 percent of all registered U.S. voters say the census should ask the citizenship question when the the time comes. That includes 88 percent of Republicans, 63 percent of independents, 52 percent of Democrats. Most notably, the poll found that 55 percent of Hispanic voters favor the idea. Also in agreement, 74% of rural voters, 59% of uh, black voters, 58% of urban voters, 47% 
of voters who backed Hillary Clinton in 2016. At 44 percent, liberal voters were the least likely to favor the citizenship question. At the other end of the scale, 92 percent of Trump voters and 90 percent of conservatives back the question. Uh, The Harvard poll... um, uh, only uh, polled 2,182 registered voters was conducted in late June, just to put that into perspective. So something interesting to consider in the context of this ongoing dispute. In other news, President Trump on Tuesday defended Labor Secretary Alexander Acosta. More on that because he held a press conference earlier today, an effort to keep his job. He's facing mounting calls to resign over his handling of disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein in 2008 and the sex trafficking case. Now, interestingly, in addition to the charges of sexual misconduct and sexual trafficking, Um, There are questions now being asked about how Jeffrey Epstein made his money and is making his money. And there are some real serious questions about that. This may end up being a Madoff case um, as it um, uh, proceeds forward. Anyway, Acosta, who was a U.S. attorney for Florida at the time, helped Epstein to secure a plea deal that resulted in an 18-month sentence. He served just 13 months. Now, that wasn't his doing. But nonetheless, the deal was criticized as lenient because Epstein uh, could have faced a life sentence. Acosta negotiated a deal that resulted in two state solicitation charges, but no federal charges. The president said a lot of people were involved in Epstein's case a decade ago and that it needed to be reviewed very carefully. But he added that Acosta has been an excellent secretary of labor who's done a fantastic job. We'll see if that changes over time. The press conference earlier today was a lawyer speaking to uh, the media. It wasn't... Um, didn't make for great dramatic television, which may not translate into stories being told that are favorable to him. And the president tends to gauge his loyalty to cabinet members based on media coverage. So we'll see whether or not his support of of, um, Acosta will remain. Howard Kurtz, host of Media Buzz on Fox News, has one warning about the Epstein case, as lurid as the allegations are. Be careful about implicating Trump, former President Clinton and others, despite the hedge fund manager's many political connections. Well, we'll see what happens there. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez fired back at House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, saying she found remarks by the leader of the party's caucus puzzling after Pelosi dismissed her and three other progressives. Representative Ilhan Omar, Democrat from Minnesota, Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, and Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts, who'd voted against a $4.6 billion border aid package at the end of June. All these people have their public whatever and their Twitter world, Pelosi told a, a New York Times um, a reporter last Saturday, but they didn't have any following. There are four people, and that's how many votes they get. Well, on Tuesday, Ocasio-Cortez responded, it's not even the four of us, it's like these ones. What the speaker said is not true. It's just wrong as progressives. It's OK not to vote for the legislation to uh, make a point. Sean Hannity of Fox News says all out war is erupting in the Democratic Party and Pelosi is losing control of her caucus to AOC and the new extreme left. Now, we witnessed the same thing in the Republican Party. You were uh, right. Re- might remember uh, with the uh, Freedom Caucus and we're witnessing it now on the other side of the aisle with the uh, uh, with the uh, Democrats. Uh, One quick uh, news buzz. AOC says that she's open to getting rid of the entire Department of Homeland Security. An interesting comment. She's being flayed for having made it. She was 12 years old when 9-11 took place in 2001. 
And it, as you might recall, under the Bush administration, the Department of Homeland Security grew out of a response to protect the homeland following that attack. We're going to take a quick break here in a moment, but we'll continue to wind our way through some of the headlines and then we'll flesh out some stories in their meteor version. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res and Liberty Coin and Currency. Well, thousands of fans and tons of confetti uh, don New York City and the nation on, as they honor the U.S. women's national soccer team for its World Cup title. Uh, the victory with a ticker tape parade at uh, Gotham's Canyon of Heroes, the parade Started at 9.30 a.m. this morning, Eastern Time. Moved up the Canyon of Heroes, a section of Broadway between the Battery and uh, City Hall. The stretch of Lower Manhattan has uh, long hosted ticker tape parades for world leaders, veterans, hometown sports stars. The festivities uh, come uh, with speculation over whether the team's going to be invited to the White House and whether its stars would accept the invitation if given. Well, the superstar Megan uh, Rapinoe, she doubled down uh, in her opposition to the visit uh, to the White House and primarily to the president on Tuesday, but expressed that she was open to accept invitations from anyone who believes the same things we believe in, like Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I think they ought to take the opportunity and confront the president if they uh, oppose uh, what he's doing. But nonetheless, they had their ticker tape parade uh, earlier this morning, 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Now, you are a soccer guy, Clark. I wanted to give you an opportunity to comment on uh, this world soccer, uh, U.S. Um, women's soccer team World Cup victory. They're champions for four times. It's the second time in a row most recently. Your thoughts on these uh, these women? It's and- Rapino. It's not Rapino. Oh, Rapinoe. thank you. Thank yeah. you. See, I'm not a soccer fan. I have no idea. She's a University of Portland graduate. She's yeah. A- yep. Yep. You had mentioned that. That's the only reason yeah. I knew it. Got to watch her when she was much younger. Mm-hmm. But uh, she won a championship here in 2005 for the Pilots. And, uh, Rapino. 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 Yep. Yep. No, it was pretty great. Uh, that's the fourth. It's the only time they've won it back-to-back. Mm-hmm. I remember watching the uh, 99 uh, World Cup final. Uh, that was with, um, boy, Mia Hamm and... Brandy Chastain and Tiffany Milbrod, who I went to junior high, high school really? and college with. Yeah. Yeah. So that was exciting. And they hadn't won it since 99. And then mm-hmm. they won it four years ago, which was a big hurdle that they finally got over. And uh, yeah, they had a really good run. I mean, the the gap is closing a little bit um, as soccer federations around the world, at least in Europe right now, are putting a little more money into it. Um, so do you think they're going to be successful? The cry... Uh, the rallying cry this year is equal pay. I mean, these women have outperformed the men pretty significantly for a while. Well, as it was pointed out, the final this year for the Women's World Cup, the U.S. and the Netherlands featured two teams that hadn't made it in the Men's World Cup at all, hadn't qualified for the tournament at all last year. The U.S. and the Netherlands mm-hmm. both uh, uh, missed out. So um, they have had this, this has been a lawsuit that's been ongoing for yeah. a couple years, I think. I don't know. They certainly have the claim to it. Yeah. Now, my guess is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because you're sort of an insider, certainly more than I am, that the salary is dependent on what they generate in terms of revenue. Has that been the model in the past? Because the women have, uh, in terms of viewership and all that, they outperform the men even by that measure this time around. Yeah, I'm not sure of all the ins and outs of the financials, but they, they do, I think they bring in more money. 
it's probably television rights that mm-hmm. are getting dragged into this as well. But uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to they watch. They sell when out happens. when they go. Yeah, and they're yeah. going to do a victory tour here against. They're going to play some meaningless games during the. I think there's four. Mm-hmm. set up across the country here between now and uh, October, and they'll sell those out. Yeah, and to have a chance to just see them play, yeah. just to observe the skill. And soccer among girls is increasing. My niece, for example, she's going to be a freshman in high school. She's going to be playing soccer. My brother and his bride, they were both soccer players. My brother, an All-American soccer player at George Fox. So it's really increasing in uh, popularity these days. So it'll be fun to watch. Yeah. Or not watch, which is probably... You should watch it. <laughs> I might I might make the effort. Hey, thanks, Clark. Yep. Taking a look at other news, uh, federal appeals judges in New Orleans are entertaining the idea of striking some or all of Obamacare, appearing uncertain during oral arguments that took place yesterday over whether Congress intended to toss the entire health care law. The judges didn't say when they would uh, rule, regardless of the outcome. The case is likely to be appealed to the Supreme Court, could be decided right around the 2020 elections. By any measure, however, whatever this court rules, it's not going to change anything anytime soon. So make note of that. President Trump promised to reduce Americans' pharmacy bills, and he seems to be delivering. His administration will soon finalize a rule that restructures the drug supply chain and ensures that tens of billions of dollars of hidden rebates and discounts flow to patients. The rule affects Medicare Part D, the federal prescription drug benefit for 45 million seniors and people with disabilities. And the British ambassador to the U.S. who criticized President Trump has resigned. The U.K. Foreign Office said Wednesday, Ambassador Kim Darroch, uh, in documents leaked in recent days, slammed the Trump administration as diplomatically clumsy and inept and said he doubted it would become substantially more normal. Well, the interesting thing is not so much the impression that the uh, U.K. Foreign Office uh, had of the Trump administration, but that the information was leaked. We give a lot of information and exchange a lot of important classified information with the UK. And so I think the larger concern, aside from the spat between these personalities, is that information is being leaked and there are implications far beyond whether or not one guy likes another guy. I feel like we're kind of in junior high where you're passing notes. Do you like him? You know, check yes or no. President Trump's nomination of Washington, D.C. Attorney uh, Daniel Bress to the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco was confirmed by the Senate yesterday on a party line vote, giving Trump seven appointees to a court he has regularly denounced. In fact, the Supreme Court has denounced by overturning more of their decisions than any other. With Bress's confirmation, the court will have 16 judges appointed by Democratic presidents, 12 by Republicans and one vacancy. Judge Carlos Bay and Jay Bybee have announced plans to transfer to senior status with reduced caseloads, creating two more vacancies for Trump to fill. In less than two hours after beginning a special session called in response to a mass shooting, Virginia lawmakers abruptly adjourned on Tuesday and postponed any movement on gun laws until after the November election. And the Trump administration is selling $2.2 billion worth of tanks and missiles to Taiwan, but has delayed exports of F-16s over budget shortfalls in Taipei. And on this day in 1999, the U.S. women's soccer team wins the World Cup, beating China 5-4 on penalty kicks after 120 minutes of scoreless play at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. That was back in 99. And of course, that uh, was a win for the World Cup. Back in 1509, let's go back a ways, the theologian John Calvin, a key figure of the Protestant Reformation, is born in Noyon, Picardy, France. 
On this day in 1919, President Woodrow Wilson personally delivers the Treaty of Versailles to the Senate and urges its ratification. The Senate rejected it, however. On this day in 1925, jury selection takes place in Dayton, Tennessee, in the trial of John T. Scopes, who's uh, charged with violating the law by teaching Darwin's theory of evolution. The rest of that story you may know. Scopes would be uh, convicted and fined, but the verdict is overturned on a technicality. On this day in 1991, Boris Yeltsin, a name you probably haven't heard recently, takes the oath of office as the first elected president of the, Rub- of the Russian Republic. And finally, on this day in 2004, President George W. Bush says in his weekly radio address that legalizing gay marriage would redefine the most fundamental institutions of civilization and that a constitutional amendment is needed to protect traditional marriage. Wasn't that long ago that was the position um, held. I want to find this story that, uh, yeah, this is kind of uh, interesting. In in light of that, we were told there's no slippery slope. We're talking about one thing and one thing only. Uh, But Tony Perkins, in his um, column in the Daily Signal, points out that top psychologists, group members, advocate non-judgmental posture on non-monogamy. Just when you think you've heard it all, the American Psychological Association has decided this. Monogamy is a new bigotry. That's right. According to the supposed mental health experts, open marriages are the tolerant approach to intimacy, and they've launched a task force to prove it to the world. According to the APA's official description of this initiative, finding love and or sexual intimacy is a central part of most people's life experience. However, the ability to engage in desired intimacy without social and medical stigmatization is not a is uh, not a liberty for all. People who practice consensual non-monogamy, as the APA calls it, are unduly marginalized. And it's time, the APA argues, to promote awareness and inclusivity for people who practice polyamory, open relationships, swinging, relationship anarchy, and other types of ethical non-monogamous relationships. Ethical non-monogamous relationships, end quote. Well, the APA may call these uh, open relationships ethical, but the American people sure don't. In Gallup's latest survey on moral acceptability, it's hard to find a behavior more universally frowned upon than adultery or polygamy. Only 9% of the country agrees with the APA that fidelity is somehow narrow-minded or passe. The multiple spouse relationship is mildly more uh, has mildly more support at 18%. Hollywood is certainly playing its role or entertainment media reality shows in uh, helping to change that view. And of course, the APA will have an influence on a segment of the population as well. Still, the head of the task force writes, I'm concerned about the lack of support this community is receiving. Too many clients, um, the head of the task force goes on to say, who are in consensual non-monogamous relationships have to educate their therapists. Too many of them discontinue therapy because their therapists judge them, didn't know enough about CNM to be helpful or worse, make, uh, makes activity, uh, actively stigmatizing comments. Well, it's time, he insists, to examine our biases and take a non-judgmental posture toward clients engaging in consensual non-monogamy just as we would with LGBTQ clients. Now, we were told at the time that this issue, LGBTQ issues, were being debated, and particularly uh, same-sex marriage, that there was no connection, there was no slippery slope. We would uh, begin and end on one subject. But the Family Research Council's Kathy Roos, who, like most, thinks the APA has long been off the rails for some time, can't believe the organization is fighting to give swingers protected legal status. And they 
Uh, They're supposed to be the psychological healthy ones. Well, keep in mind, she points out, the American Psychological Association is a professional guild when it makes a controversial decision like this one. That decision is not made by a vote of its 100,000 plus members, which include educators and students, according to Wikipedia. No, it's made by small numbers of powerful activists who have sought out places of influence like task forces. And how will the APA fight for the liberty of sexual anarchists against social and medical stigmatization? Uh, She asks, with a measly budget of, I don't know, $100 million, just over, um, just as it tried to tear down the social norms for transgenderism and sexual proclivities, it'll start in the usual place, soft targets like children. So... um, There you have uh, another front in the culture, that slippery slope. 31 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to talk about Acosta, the labor secretary who defended his role in the Epstein plea deal in a press conference earlier today. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you that Tim Byrne will be our guest in the 5 o'clock hour. He's an urban missionary. He's a pastor, itinerant evangelist. He's also the high school leader and pastor at Skate Church. We'll tell you all about it when he joins us in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, Labor Secretary Alexander Acosta pushed back today, again, uh, calling for against those, rather, calling for him to step down over his past involvement in a plea deal for financier uh, Jeffrey Epstein, who was charged in federal court this week with sex trafficking, saying his office fought for a tougher punishment after state prosecutors are ready to let him walk free. Well, one of the state prosecutors has since said it wasn't quite accurate. Uh, Facts are important and facts are being overlooked, he said at a press conference, giving his most detailed account to date of the 2008 deal. Acosta, who was U.S. attorney for Florida at the time, helped Epstein secure a plea deal that resulted in an 18-month sentence. He served just 13 months. The deal was criticized as lenient because Epstein could uh, could have faced a life sentence. Acosta negotiated a deal that resulted in two state solicitation charges, but no federal charges. He said Wednesday that his office intervened only after state prosecutors were ready to let Epstein walk free. Simply put, the Palm Beach uh, state attorney's office was ready to let Epstein walk free. No jail time, he said. Prosecutors in my office found this to be completely unacceptable, end quote. Well, Acosta argued that it was his office that secured jail time, restitution, and for Epstein to register as a sex offender. We believe that we proceeded appropriately. That's based on evidence, not just my opinion. Uh, there were, were was value to getting a guilty plea and having him register, he said. Still, Acosta said that Epstein was accused, uh, was accused of despicable acts and his alleged crimes absolutely deserves, deserve a stiffer sentence. Epstein was charged this week with sex trafficking and conspiracy during a an early 2000s based um, on a new on new evidence. He pled not guilty on Monday in New York City federal court, perhaps believing he could walk this time as well. Epstein allegedly created and maintained a vast network and operation from 2002 up to and including at least 2005 that enabled him to exploit and abuse dozens of underage girls in addition to paying victims to recruit other underage girls. Since then, his ties, Acosta's ties to Epstein have drawn fire from Democrats. House Speaker Pelosi called Monday for Acosta to step down. As U.S. attorney, he engaged in an unconscionable agreement with um, Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, kept secret from courageous young victims, preventing them from seeking justice. She tweeted, this was known by uh, POTUS when he appointed him to the cabinet. Well, meanwhile, Democrats on the House Oversight Committee wrote to him 
inviting him to testify on the 23rd of July at a hearing uh, to examine his actions related to Epstein. It would most likely be less of a um, useful event, more of a photo op and an opportunity to be heard by members of Congress than to for Acosta to defend himself. We'll see what happens there. President Trump, who also has past ties with Epstein, backed his labor secretary on Tuesday and said he's done a fantastic job in that role while saying his administration will look very closely at the situation. As I mentioned earlier, my guess is how this is covered in the media may determine whether or not that disposition remains and the president supports his uh, labor secretary. Asked Wednesday about his future with the administration, Acosta said, if the president decides to at some point that I am not the best person to do the job, then I will respect that. Of course, you don't really have an option when the president you serve in the cabinet as uh, at the president's pleasure. And so we'll uh, we'll see what happens there. Well, the upcoming Democratic presidential debates will feature opening and closing statements and two hours of debate time each night. Representatives for more than 20 candidates competing in the primary were informed uh, Tuesday by CNN. CNN is airing the much anticipated Democratic National Committee sanctioned debates live from Detroit. 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. our time on July the 30th and 31st. Dana Dash, Don Lemon and Jake Tapper will serve together as the moderators for both debates. Now, it's interesting Don Lemon is included in that. Typically in a debate, you have um, journalists rather than opinion makers. Uh, Don Lemon doesn't seem to fit the profile that was the same for the first set. But this was the uh, the lineup that they have chosen. While candidates will not officially learn if they make the Detroit stage until the 17th of this month, Tuesday's call with the 20-plus Democratic campaigns was held to help them prepare for the debate should their respective candidate qualify. The window to determine debate eligibility closes on the 16th. That's literally the day before the announcement is made. And uh, candidates will be informed the next day if they will be invited to participate in Detroit. On the 18th of July, CNN will uh, air a live draw to determine the specific candidate lineups for each debate. Uh, night. The campaign represent, uh, representatives also learned on Tuesday that the candidates will be given 60 seconds to respond to a moderator directed question, 30 seconds uh, to uh, respond uh, for responses and rebuttals. So, again, very little time given, given the number of candidates. Republicans experience uh, similar, although fewer candidates, restrictions uh, last time around. In addition, the campaign representatives were told uh, colored lights will be used to help the candidates manage their remaining response times. 15 seconds yellow, five seconds flashing red, no time remaining solid red. A candidate um, attacked by name by another candidate will be given 30 seconds to respond. There will be no show of hands or one word down the line questions. A candidate who consistently interrupts will have his or her time reduced. Questions posed by the moderators will appear on the button of the screen for television viewers. CNN and the DNC will also be casting wide nets to gauge voters' concerns and interests in the weeks leading up to the debate, according to CNN. So, again, that's all coming up, and these are the sort of the ground rules that they'll be functioning other uh, under. President Trump scored a pretty big win on Wednesday when the Fourth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals agreed to throw out a case that accused him of violating the Constitution through earnings from D.C. businesses, including the Trump International Hotel. The lawsuit brought by the Attorney General of Maryland in Washington, D.C., I should say Attorneys General, claimed that earnings from the hotel and its related businesses violated prohibitions against receiving benefits from foreign governments, the U.S. or individual states. The Fourth Circuit declared that Maryland and D.C., lacked standing, so they didn't rule on the merits of the case, but said they lacked standing to bring the case to in the first place and ordered the lower court to dismiss the complaint. 
Word just out that I won a big part of the deep state and Democrat-induced witch hunt Trump tweeted Wednesday morning. Well, it was more of a procedural decision, again, rather than the merits of the case. But he went on to write, unanimous decision in my favor from the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit on the ridiculous emoluments case. I don't uh, make money but lose a fortune for the honor of serving and doing a great job as your president. Well, again, this may um, spark other states who would have standing uh, to file similar suits that would uh, uh, force the uh, circuit court to rule on the merits. And we'll see what uh, what may happen with other states following suit. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez fired back on Tuesday at House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, saying she found remarks by the leader of her party's caucus puzzling after uh, Pelosi dismissed her and three others. Pelosi defended her efforts to ratchet up support from Congress uh, for more funding for border uh, aid requesting uh, requested rather by the president and ultimately passed by the House with bolstered efforts to protect and enhance the treatment of migrant children despite a lack of support for the legislation from uh, Ocasio-Cortez and three of her compatriots. All these people have their public whatever. You know what Pelosi went on to say. It's not even the four of us, Ocasio-Cortez pointed out. Well, the House accepted the Senate drafted bill, much to the dismay of many Democrats who saw it as a win for Senate Minority, uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. At the end of the day, Mitch McConnell is going to uh, Mitch McConnell. I'm not sure what that means, Ocasio-Cortez said. I did not believe for a minute McConnell was going to pass the House bill. The House bill was dead on arrival. Well, she also said her vote on the border aid package was not indicative of how she'd vote on an upcoming defense bill to bar U.S. troops from being sent to the border. I'm not uh, tying my defense vote to my vote on the border. They are two different chess pieces. I'm not sure who is tying them together, but the freshman's pushback was seen as the... um, Uh, The latest in attempts to challenge Pelosi and to push the ideology further to the left, including the introduction of the Green New Deal and pushing for a $15 minimum wage. Now, John Boehner, who faced a similar pushback, not from freshmen, but from members of the Freedom Caucus, is probably uh, uh, chuckling just a bit as Nancy Pelosi is trying to juggle um, those on the left in uh, her party as well. All right, we're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show back momentarily you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq 50 minutes after four o'clock you're listening to the georgine rice show california governor gavin newsom signed a bill into law yesterday making young illegal immigrants eligible for the medicaid program in california since they are flush with money making it the first state to offer such taxpayer funded health benefits to low-income adults age 25 and younger regardless of their immigration status state officials said they expected the plan to cover about ninety thousand people cost taxpayers 98 million dollars california already covered children 18 and younger regardless of immigration status the law will not give health insurance benefits to anyone 25 and younger, but only those uh, whose income is low enough to qualify. Now, Newsom and fellow Democrats in the state legislature said they plan to expand coverage to more adults in the years to come. Advocates of the measure have uh, called it a way of to improve the health of immigrants in the state by providing them with access to the medical care they need. Many in the community Uh, The country illegally already have been enrolled for some government funded programs, but they covered only emergencies and pregnancies. Well, Democrats had pushed for uh, to expand the coverage to even more adults. But Newsom rejected that proposal, saying it would cost three point four billion dollars to provide coverage to all California adults living in the country illegally. But he still 
um, has vowed to keep expanding coverage in the future. So that number will be embraced, assuming he holds his position at some point not too far down the line. Well, future generations are going to pay the price of uh, runaway national debt, and I suppose that applies to states as well. But Americans' national debt is pretty much out of control, and the youngest Americans and future generations will likely pay the biggest price for it. So don't worry, you're going to be fine. It's just your grandchildren. That's one takeaway from new long-term budget outlook report by the Congressional Budget Office. The agency's long-term budget projections are bleak, with debt nearly doubling over the next 30 years. Yet we could avoid this um, fate if Congress reigns in its sugar daddy propensities and prioritizes spending so that taxpayer dollars support truly essential constitutional functions. But that's not going to happen. Lawmakers serious about doing this need to look no further than the a blueprint for balance that shows Congress how to cut, uh, I should say, how to balance the budget in 10 years and start paying off the national debt. But again, they're not going to do that. The first step toward fiscal recovery is to implement strong spending restraints that force Washington to live within its means. Now, that also means that some members are probably not going to be reelected because they don't, as sugar daddies, bring home everything their constituents want, uh, deciding rather in the long term future of the nation. Rather than their own political future, every growing entitlement spending and interest payment on the national debt are the two areas where spending is most out of control. Together, they're projected to account for nearly three quarters of federal spending growth over the next decade. Medicare spending is projected to double in the next 30 years. So over the same period, Social Security and other health care programs are projected to grow by 26 and 43 percent. Respectively, and as America rakes in more debt or rakes up more debt. It becomes more expensive to pay the interest. The uh, Congressional Budget Office estimates that next year Washington will uh, spend more on interest payments than on Medicaid. In just six years, interest payments will outstrip defense spending. By 2041, CBO projects that entitlement spending and interest payments on the debt will consume all federal revenues. 2041 It's not that far off. One difficulty in getting entitlement spending under control is that it's... Um, On autopilot, Congress doesn't exercise direct control over the funds from year to year. It's safer for them that way, not necessarily good for the country. However, Congress does control the other third of the budget known as discretionary spending. Since 2012, discretionary spending has been limited through the Budget Control Act's spending caps. But unfortunately, Congress will... uh, its will to limit discretionary spending has been weak, leading to three budget mega deals that have raised the caps by $440 billion over six years, with little of the new spending being paid for. Well, the long-term debt implications of the deal is uh, likely trillions of dollars. The discretionary limits are set to expire in 2021, but some lawmakers would like to see one more deal to push the caps even higher. Earlier this year, House Democrats put forth a plan to raise the caps by um, over $350 billion for the next two years, there was no plan to pay for it. If Congress uh, wants to start fixing the nation's debt problem, and quite frankly, they don't, they should start by rejecting another cap-raising deal and instead prioritize spending on essential federal functions like national defense while cutting other programs. Well, again, not likely to happen. To stabilize the budget and to pay down the national debt, discretionary cuts won't be enough. Congress has to implement reforms to lessen the costs and ensure the long-term viability of Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare. That's, of course, been 
the case for quite some time. Well, to ensure our country's continued prosperity, Congress has to implement a strong budget framework that reduces the national debt, restores sanity to budgeting. And if lawmakers fail to do that, we will all pay a price. But our children and grandchildren could pay the highest price of all. But in this self-serving generation we find ourselves in, eh, let them eat cake. Well, don't be fooled by the Americans behind the camera. In today's Hollywood, there's one director, and that's China. Now, as important as U.S. audiences are, filmmakers know there's a bigger one, and they're willing to do anything they can to tap into it, even if it means becoming co-conspirators with one of the most evil censorship operations in the world. It's the biggest partnership no one knows about, and according to some experts, the most dangerous. Tony Perkins points out, Uh, in his column on the connection between Hollywood and China, that the majority of Americans probably have no idea when they buy a ticket to the latest blockbuster that the films um, they're about to see was either partially financed by China or altered because of it in the last several years. And by the way, because fewer Americans are going to the theaters, uh, China has an outsized uh, influence uh, on its content and uh, the cost and all of that. Well, in the last several years, there hasn't been a more powerful influence over Hollywood than the communist regime. And with Chinese ticket sales set to overtake the U.S., the situation is only going to get worse. There is a sinister side to all of this, which is that the more Hollywood relies on China's market to make movies, the more those movies are going to cater to the country's demands. Mike Gonzalez, who is uh, connected with the Heritage Foundation, has been tracking the major revolution in filmmaking because of the Chinese market and thinks more Americans need to be paying attention. He writes that Hollywood does all kinds of things to make sure they have a slice of the Chinese pie. He told listeners on Washington Watch, and they're quite open about it. They don't hide it. They're quite happy to submit to the censorship of the Chinese Communist Party in order to sell tickets. It's... um, It goes something like this, he explained. In order for the U.S. film to crack the Chinese market, certain themes cannot be portrayed. Certain products must be taken out and certain speech must be limited. Now, the process has become so rigorous that a lot of studios are actually flying over these Chinese censors to sit in on the filming. In some instances, entire scripts have been changed either to conform to the communists' messaging or showcasing China in the best possible light. Others try to save themselves the time and money of those overhauls by just co-producing their movies with the Chinese from the start, including in 2018, some of the biggest blockbusters um, of the uh, of the year. Mission Impossible, Fallout, Venom, The Meg and Pacific Rim Uprising. Well, the obvious result of all this, Gonzalez argues, is that, and I'm quoting, American audiences are being submitted to censorship, not our own censorship, but a foreign power censorship and a Communist Party censorship at that. We get shown a very benign view of China in which China is a normal country, no different from Paris or Britain or Germany. That isn't the case, obviously. If you speak against the government in Germany, nothing happens to you. If you speak against the government in China, they'll throw you in jail and even worse. By letting China call the shots, these filmmakers have actually become complicit in the attack on free expression, their expression. Just think about it. And again, Gonzalez goes on to write, how come there's never been a movie about the Tiananmen Square massacre? That was uh, there was drama there. There were students who were crushed by soldiers. There was blood. There was death. There was uh, scheming. And yet Hollywood was never made a movie about Tiananmen. Why? Because any studio who makes a movie about that event or those events knows that it will um, be shut out forever from the Chinese box office. It is a compelling story. They just aren't going to tell it. This is a country with such a suffocating strictness that even Winnie the Pooh is banned. Why? Because the government is worried he'll be compared to President Xi Jinping. Huh. 
Either way, Hollywood is going along with it, prostituting its voice and America's influence in the process. Of course, most people probably aren't surprised that Tinseltown would sell out uh, its soul to make a few bucks. What they are amazed by is all the political sanctimony from filmmakers here at home. This is an industry in partnership with the Chinese government, a notoriously brutal regime who's turning around and telling places like Georgia, we're not doing business with you because you passed pro-life laws. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad you're with us, especially because we'll have a conversation with Tim Byrne. He's an urban missionary, he's a pastor, he's an itinerant evangelist, and he is a high school leader at Skate Church. If you're unfamiliar with this ministry, you got to stick around because they're doing some extraordinary work reaching young people who would otherwise have very little contact with the church and certainly not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's coming up uh, in our next segment. Well, on Sunday, Facebook COO Cheryl Sandberg, and I should say this is two Sundays ago, announced the company's latest effort to institutionalize the demands of 90 left-wing organizations into the company's operations, including um, disturbing efforts that are geared toward the 2020 elections. Well, according to the Media Research Center President Brent Bozell, he issued the following statement on behalf of the Free Speech Alliance, which is a coalition of more than 50 conservative organizations committed to combating online bias and censorship. He writes, or wrote at the time, Cheryl Sandberg just announced that she's allowing the ACLU and 90 left-wing organizations to dictate nearly every aspect of Facebook's policies. This will let the left dominate the most powerful social media platform on the face of the earth. That raises significant legal and statutory issues that should worry both the left and the right. Facebook hasn't released the names of those groups, but the crux of their plan is clear. The influence of everything Facebook does from hiring more liberals to control all uh, its content that goes so far as to include advertising partnerships and control of the product itself. Now, these groups have the power over every post a conservative makes. Facebook can't be a free marketplace of ideas with the left controlling everything and the firm's number two overseeing and embracing all that they are doing. The company's getting in bed with these uh, organizations, especially in its effort to prepare for the 2020 elections should be deeply alarming to the conservative movement, Congress, and potentially the FEC, and indeed all Americans. This was a big mistake on Facebook's part. We hope they will rethink the decision that they have made. Um, Again, rather troubling to consider that a a small cadre of influencers are now being given access to, according to um, Brent Bozell and the Media Research Center, all of the posts... um, And they will determine whether or not they're suitable, should be made available, or whether or not they should be blocked. Meanwhile, um, George Orwell was a a brilliant individual, a man of incredible insight and foresight. In his unfathomably predictive novel, 1984, he warns of Big Brother. might sound a bit old today, but at the time it was made available, it was quite insightful. Ostensibly, the leader of Oceana, a totalitarian state wherein the ruling party uh, wields total power for its own sake over the inhabitants. 
in the society that Orwell describes. Every citizen is under constant surveillance by the authorities, mainly by telescreens. The people are constantly reminded of this by the slogan, Big Brother is watching you, a maxim that is ubiquitously on display. Well, in modern culture, the term Big Brothers um, has entered the lexicon as a, as a synonym rather for abuse of government power, particularly in respect to civil liberties, often specifically related to mass surveillance. As brilliant as Orwell was, something continuously struck our readers as incorrect in 1984. Orwell's government was extraordinarily competent in its totalitarian imposition of technological power. In reality, no government in the history of man has ever been even remotely close to that competent. For Orwell's Big Brother dystopia to become reality, big government would need private sector health. Enter private sector big tech. Fast forward to the 21st century, well beyond 1984. Well, big tech has delivered much of the technology that Orwell envisioned. And but one of many examples, Orwell's telescreens, devices that operate as televisions, security cameras and microphones. Telescreens are used by the ruling party in the totalitarian fictional state of Oceania to keep its subjects under constant surveillance, thus eliminating the chance of secret conspiracies against Oceania. We already are all the way there via big tech. The study found that um, uh, that digital assistants, Google Home and Amazon Echo, can be awake even when users think they aren't listening. The devices listen all the time. They're turned on. And Amazon has envisioned Alexa using that information to build profiles on anyone in the room. Amazon filed a patent application for an algorithm that would let uh, future versions of the device identify statements of interest, such as I love skiing, enabling the speaker to be monitored based on their interests and targeted for their related advertising. Well, a Google patent application describes using a future release of its smart home system to monitor and control everything from screen time and hygiene habits to meal and travel schedules and other activities. The devices are envisioned as part of a surveillance web in the home to chart a family's patterns. This all seems insanely creepy. Big tech is insanely big. Microsoft market cap $1.1 trillion. Amazon market cap $942 billion. Google market cap $775 billion. Facebook market cap $550 billion. Well, these four spying companies are currently worth um, combined $3.7 trillion. Our nation's entire economy is $19.4 trillion, to give you some perspective, which... Um, which mans the four companies all by themselves are worth uh, 19% of the United States. But it's big tech doing the spying, not big government. Anyone who looks at big tech's all-encompassing spying ability and thinks big government is capable of doing anything remotely similar hasn't been paying much attention over the last, what, 10,000 years of human history. The only way big government can impose Big Brother is to partner with big tech. Huh. Partnering with big tech. Well, right now, the government is uh, tracking the movements of private citizens by GPS, reading private citizens emails and possibly even reading what you're saying on Facebook. Big tech once offered at least token resistance to big government's demands, at least after being outed for acquiescing to big government's demands. It's um. It first gained attention after the revelation of NSA whistleblower uh, Edward Snowden back in 2013. Congress, in its uh, process of weighing reforms for the program, 
it uh, must vote to renew Section 702 before the end of the year. Otherwise, it will expire. But the letter addressed to the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee asked Congress to consider several reforms to the program to ensure greater transparency and privacy protections. We can now officially refer to those as the good old days. Why would big government fight big? I should say, why would big tech fight big government when they can get paid to join them? And the big uh, government and big tech surveillance state is getting closer and closer to home. In fact, just outside and inside it, police departments across the country from major cities like Houston to towns with fewer than 30,000 people have offered free or discounted ring doorbells to citizens, sometimes using taxpayer funds to pay Amazon's for Amazon products. While ring owners are supposed to have a choice on providing police footage, in some giveaways, police require recipients to turn over footage when requested. Now it's requested, but you're required to turn it over. The sheer number of cameras run by Amazon's ring business raises questions about privacy involving both law enforcement and tech giants. Critics have pointed out the retail giant, other ventures like With law enforcement, like offering facial recognition tools, are of concern. More than 50 local police departments across the U.S. have partnered with Ring over the last two years, lauding how the Amazon-owned product allows them to access security footage in areas that typically don't have cameras on suburban doorsteps. What we have here is a perfect marriage between law enforcement and one of the world's biggest companies, creating conditions for a society that few people would want to be a part of. That's what... One staff attorney for the ACLU of Southern California points out that's the outside of your home. Well, here's the inside. The government just admitted it will use smart home devices for spying as well. If you want evidence that U.S. intelligence agencies aren't losing surveillance abilities because of the rising use of encryption by tech companies, look no further than the testimony by then Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper. Clapper made clear that the Internet of Things, um, the many devices that uh, like thermostats, cameras and other appliances that are increasingly connected to the Internet are providing ample opportunity for intelligence agencies to spy on targets and possibly the masses. And it's a danger that many consumers who buy these products may be wholly unaware of. Well, there's more to be said, but uh, I think the uh, the point is clear. The connection between big government using um, technology that big tech is providing and uh, while it does uh, perhaps mean that in the in the instance of a crime, we find that we are safer because uh, surveillance makes it possible to determine maybe not safer, but crimes can be um, solved because they have access to that information. It also raises other more serious questions. Big government and big tech partnering to track us everywhere for perfectly innocent reasons, but can be um, imagined to be used for nefarious purposes in that kind of uh, oversight that 1984 once predicted as fiction. 16 minutes after five coming up, we'll talk with Tim Byrne, urban missionary, pastor, itinerant evangelist, skate church. That's our subject up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I'm excited to talk today about skate church. Now, when I use those two words together, you might wonder what on earth could that be? Well, oftentimes skating, uh, we're talking about skateboarding, is associated with drugs, alcohol, stealing wood to build skateboard ramps and all of that sort of thing. Well, in 1987, The 23-year-old friends sponsored amateur freestyle skaters um, here in the Portland area. 
in order to share the gospel. And that began as a simple ministry that has now reached some 12,195 skaters in the greater Portland area who have heard the gospel through Skate Church. We're going to talk about it because you need to be aware and how to support this ministry that is reaching young people who might not otherwise have any interest at all in hearing the gospel, attending a church, uh, or associating in any way with the good news. Well, my guest is Tim Byrne. He um, has been in full-time skateboarding ministry since September of 2000, and by the end of the following year, he was considered one of the best pro freestyle flatland skaters in the world. Well, over the years, he skated and shared at every major Christian festival in the United States. He's appeared at pretty much all the major Christian venues, churches, and conferences. He continues to travel at uh, uh, as a uh, large and small outreach speaker uh, speaker and presenter all over the globe. Tim is also a pastor at Skate Church, um, started back in 1987. Skate Church has had 12,000 skaters come through the doors and close to 2,000 professions of faith in Jesus Christ. The model has been duplicated to uh, thousands of other locations all around the globe. Uh, we're talking about Skate Church because this is a ministry that is effectively reaching um, young people. Uh, as well as those who uh, continue to skate into adulthood with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Tim, I am so delighted to have you with us and to have the opportunity to talk about skate culture and skate church. Welcome. Yeah, thank you, Georgine. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Um, yeah, Skate Church, and I, yeah, we feel really honored. So thank you. Great intro, by the way. That was awesome. <laughs> well, so, thank you very much. You're welcome. Yeah. Well, let's talk uh, about what Skate Church is, because I think for some of our listeners, those two words might seem incongruous. What is Skate Church doing to reach uh, people in our community and around the world with the gospel? Yeah, well, in our community, I mean, it is an outreach ministry. Um, you know, oftentimes we associate it with the Sunday, Wednesday type of meetings, or when we think of church, that's what we think of. You know, we think of that Sunday, Wednesday type meetings. Um, for us, it's an outreach-based ministry. We have an indoor skate park. Uh, we meet, as of now, five nights a week. We have so many that come to our park throughout the year. We have over 700 right now, which is crazy. Incredible. It is, it is. Um, and with that said, we have to break it up by age group. And so what that looks like is um, every night, different age group rolls in the door. The park is absolutely free, by the way. Um, and so we open up at 6.30. We go to 9. That's our typical time for each session. Um, and then there's a talk in between. Now, the park is absolutely free, but you have to stay for the talk. That's the rule. Once you get the wristband on, and you're signed in, you know, there's a Jesus talk that takes place from 7.30 to 8. That's how we word it anyway, because we want to be up front with each person mm-hmm. who wants to participate at our park. Um, you, you know, we don't want to dupe anybody. But with that being said, it is it, outreach, meaning that the gospel is shared, who Jesus is, why we need him, turning from sin, basically fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we believe Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. You know, he is the one and only Son of God, and there's no other way to the Father but through him. And we preach that every single night at Skate Church. Um, And recently, our fifth night, so we ran for four nights, uh, so Monday through Thursday for years, and just recently, um, recently meaning early 2019, earlier this year, uh, we started a recovery group ministry um, for addicts. And uh, we had a a friend of ours that came over from Teen Challenge that was a leader at Teen Challenge. Um, So he comes, he sits with the guys, and we help resource, you know, people that are just battling life's problems, to be more particular, yeah, uh, yeah. so, so anyway, yeah, so Skate Church is an outreach outreach ministry, and then when people come to Christ and 
want to know what it means to follow Jesus, we, we work with a network of churches around us. Um, Imago Day would be one of them. Another one is Door of Hope. And then we're right in the parking lot of Central Bible. So if people are interested in going to Central Bible, we point them in that direction as well to get them plugged in, growing in the faith. Well, it's such, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, it's such an exciting concept. And I know that the the two guys who are responsible for the founding, Paul Anderson and Clint uh, Biddleman, uh, were uh, responsible for the founding of Skate Church, were a couple of young people who enjoyed skating. They went to Multnomah and um, decided that they wanted to reach this community in a way that um, that they would uh, would be willing to hear the gospel. And that has always been a central part of what Skate Church is about. Now, in addition to that 30 minutes, that's a part of each evening when Skate Church takes place, there are also opportunities for further Bible studies for those who want to go deeper. Absolutely. Yeah. So an hour before our junior high session and our high school session, there is a Bible study. Um, yeah. So, and then our over 18 night, we have one as well. So yeah, there's a, it's an hour before our session. So say like we open the doors at 630. So we go from 530 to, to six or five. Uh, yeah. Well, let's hear your story. How did you uh, get to be a world renowned uh, skater and how did you come to faith in Christ and those two things come together? Yeah, I can't believe so. You read it. I don't know. Did you read that? Is that from my website? I, it sounds like something that was written uh, a <laughs> while ago. So, oh, oh, man. Anyway, yeah. So I grew up in a, in a small town in Missouri. Um, yeah, and, you know, for me, I I didn't grow up in a Christian home, didn't really grow up wanting to hear anything about Jesus. And uh, I remember as I got older, I was 19, getting ready to turn 20, and just life was just kind of just not making sense, kind of sputtering. Uh, so to speak. And I just, I remember praying sincerely one night, God, if you're real, you know, show up in my life. And uh, the days that turned into weeks that turned into months after that, everything just really got out of control. And I'll make a long story really short. <laughs> that is, uh, you know, I, I just, I hit rock bottom. A um, couple of months after that, just praying sincerely to God, everything just really got messed up. And I got to a place where, you know, they don't make enough drugs to shove in your body to numb that type of pain or enough alcohol to drown up those types of sorrows. I got to a place of such hopelessness and brokenness that I drove my car to a parking lot of a building that had a cross on it. I went to a church, and I'd never gone to church. And I remember thinking to myself, God, last chance, I don't know what you're going to do with my life after this, as I'm looking at this building and and, uh, contemplating going inside, right? And I still remember walking across that parking lot, and I went inside, and for the first time as I... I sat and I, I remember listening to the pastor, you know, for the first time, not trying to pick it apart or be critical of his message. Um, you know, just really, if it, God, if you're real, if this is truth, you know, show me, wake me up to this. I'll, I'll follow you, you know. And I just remember the, the ender um, at that service, anyway, the pastor closed his Bible and he gave an opportunity for people to respond in, in prayer. If you need prayer for anything, you know, come forward. And I just remember feeling, you know, so hopeless and so messed up and just, yeah, just suicidal. I didn't even want to live anymore. I mean, it got that bad. And so anyway, I went up in, in front of the church and I looked right into the pastor's eyes and I still remember him just looking right at me and he came off the stage and he put his hand on my shoulder and he, and he whispered to me, he says, son, do you know Jesus is your Lord and Savior? And I, and I said, no. And I still remember as I prayed, you know, with him that night, I just I remember saying, Jesus, I forgive me of my sin. Um, you are the Lord, be the Lord of my life. Help me to live for you from this day on. And I still remember as I confessed sin, it just felt like something broke loose in my heart. Mm. Um, it felt like this feeling of hope just invaded me. I started like, tearing up, crying tears, you know, just, I guess, crying, but like eyes were watery, tears of joy, that kind of vibe. Hugged everybody around me, and I just, like, 
you know, it was, it was real. It was legit. I couldn't wait home or excuse me. I couldn't wait to get home to tell my dad, you know, that Jesus is Lord and that he needs them and to go back skateboarding with my buddies that I grew up with. So with, with that being said, so I got radically saved and changed and transformed. And, you know, as when we encounter Jesus, three things happen. If it's legit and it's really true. And that is new mind, new heart, a new purpose. And I remember that night, God, it felt like my mind began to become more and more transformed, new heart. My heart was no longer hardened toward the things of God, but God gave me a soft heart, you know, toward, uh, toward him and toward others and uh, new purpose, which was, I had no idea that God wanted to use skateboarding. You know, I'm from the Ozarks. I am really from the sticks, like uh, a town that if I mentioned it, you, <laughs> most of the <laughs> listeners would know what I'm talking about, right? So I grew up in a town called Rolla, Missouri, just in case somebody does know. But, uh, you know, I, yeah, I, I had no idea what would happen with skating. I had a few sponsors, but nothing big. So I went to a music festival called Cornerstone that used to take place over in Illinois and uh, got on a got on a skateboard company that was there doing demonstrations and they happened to be a group of Christian guys they asked me to be on their team. Then about a month after that, um, there was a tour that opened up. It was uh, all the old Christian rock bands like MG the Visionary, Beanbag, PAX 217. It was booked by uh, this old art- artist agency called Third Coast and they put this whole thing together. I had no idea who these guys were, but I was available and I said yes. And I, I've been saying yes for the last... <laughs> for 19 years now, going out and preaching the gospel. So that was my first um, introduction into that. Yeah. Well, I should mention that you um, you are a missionary of Skate Church. You raise your own salary. You and your wife, Liz, have chosen a modest lifestyle in order to follow Jesus and to proclaim the gospel to young people. I'm going to take a quick break, but I want to continue to talk about Skate Church because uh, there's a camp coming up I think people need to know about as well. So stick with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Tim Byrne. He's an urban missionary, a pastor, an itinerant evangelist with Skate Church. He works with the high school uh, students. Uh, he's a leader in that uh, element of Skate Church. And we're just talking about uh, this ministry that I'm, I'm sure it's probably uh, right to say you never imagined would uh, somehow connect uh, you're skating with ministering the gospel to, <laughs> to young people, not only in our community, but around the world. But God is so uh, amazing in that he innovates ways for us to reach people who um, aren't necessarily looking for him. And, and that's what you've been doing. Let's talk about the impact that Skate Church is having on uh, the people, the young people who come through the camp. You've got high schoolers, middle schoolers, and you've got uh, a younger set as well. Yeah, so the impact would be, you know, each so each night so we got our, our junior high night, high school um, on then on on Wednesday, so midweek we do our kindergarten through fifth, and then Thursdays is our over eighteen. Like I said earlier, I mean, you know, we have all we have so many coming and so many registered that we have to break it up by age group. Um, the impact that it's having, I mean, there's so many awesome stories of change lives at Skate Church. Um, some of them you get you find out immediately, and some of them you know it's years after. Um, I don't know if you if you if you are familiar with uh, the Bible Project with Dr. Tim yes. Mackey and, and John Collins, but you know Tim was a weed smoking skateboarder that was, you know, it was back in 1997, right? You know, right before attending skate church, was just hanging out at Burgerville with all these other skaters, and was like, all right, cool, let's go to the park, blow off the talk, just kind of, you know, not really pay much attention, just we're here to skate, kind of a thing stoned out of his mind, but, you know, somehow the gospel of Jesus broke through that guy's heart, and 
he became a Christian, gave his life to Jesus. And uh, it's kind of crazy that years later, after going to, you know, loads of schooling and all that stuff, I mean, and, and being a pastor, but yeah, Tim and John Collins were actually on staff at Skate Church in the early 2000s while attending Multnomah in those days, which is pretty cool. So that's that's one of our, our major stories, you know, in terms of impact that most people would be aware of. But loads of pastors in the city, like um, Gerald Griffin, who's a good friend of ours. He's a pastor down at Bridgetown, mm-hmm. um, alongside John Mark Comer. And Gerald was on staff at Skate Church for a time. Um, Josh White comes through and talks every week for me. He's a pastor. He's the pastor of Door of Hope Church. And uh, he, he comes through and does uh, at least uh, one night a month for high school, which is awesome. So, yeah, the impact is amazing. When, when these guys give their lives to Jesus, it's, it's, they don't have any framing for it. You know, the, our, our, our audience is, you know, this isn't youth group. This isn't a, a churchy kind of a thing. I mean, there's just, for the most part, it's the first time they've ever heard about Jesus and sin and it leads to death and that real life only found in him and his finished work on the cross. And... And you just see that when, when there's that change, that switch, it's like, whoa, I want to know more about what that means. Right? I want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus. And yeah. so that's where the Bible studies take place. And that's where, you know, pointing them into these local churches that are, you know, Bible teaching. So, yeah, yeah. I, hope that, I, hope, I hope I answered that, George. Oh, absolutely. I, I just it's so exciting to me to see how God I uses unlikely things and unlikely people to do extraordinary things for the for the sake of the gospel. I know that Skate Church has partnered with Luis Palau Evangelistic Association. You've done 11 demonstrations at Palau festivals in the United States and Europe. Uh, as you mentioned, we've got 20 Skate Church students, and that number is growing, who've gone on to Bible college in some capacity. Four skaters went on to teach at Bible college or seminary. You've got pastors, as you've mentioned. You have expressions of skate church in the United States, Canada, Australia, Europe, Africa, India. Again, it's just remarkable what God is doing uh, using a a, a means that seems very unlikely, putting skate and church together and seeing how the gospel is transforming lives. It just, it's exciting to me and it's extraordinary. Yeah. it's It's the best. I love, I love love skate church it, there's a it's a battle too i mean i i did this week alone i had to talk to a kid who was trying to deal drugs and i mm. have kids who you know get into some really heavy stuff i had one kid come in the door one night and his head had just been stomped um he was taking one of the bus lines he got his head stomped by a group of bloods that's what he told me anyway and they, his face was messed up so you get that knock on the door you know and they're setting up for bible study and you just got to go okay let's let's talk about this let's deal with this there's just so much, and, and the devil absolutely hates us. So, you know, for Skate Church and us, I mean, we're just a group of guys that skate. We love the Lord, but we we pray. We lean wholeheartedly in on, on the Lord and, and what He would have us to do and to continue to be faithful with that message. I mean, we're not we're not kooks. This isn't a front. This is our life. I want to see these kids turn from sin and really put their trust in Jesus and, and really get saved and follow after him. And I want to spend my life doing that. And so skate, you know, and skateboarding to, to relate it this way too. I mean, it's a, it's a lifestyle. It is a yes. culture. There's no difference in, than somebody getting, you know, getting their passport or learning, learning a language of a certain people group and then going overseas and sharing Jesus with them. This, this, that is what we do. The churches just simply aren't reaching skaters. That's why we, you know, in our city anyway. And so that's why we, um, you know, we, we rely heavily on outside support big time to keep doing what we do. And God totally has provided and still provides. And it's amazing. 
Um, but with that said, I mean, we speak their language. We are, we are the, you know, I was them, mm-hmm. you know, I just happen, I still skate. I just happen to be a Christian. I have to have Christ in me, the hope of glory. And, uh, and it's hope for me, but hopefully they see that hope that, you know, I want them to experience through Jesus. So yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's hard. It's, it's all that. And we have a great volunteer team. We have over 30 volunteers that are faithful and you know, there's three of us that are main missionary support. So myself, Paul Anderson, and Dave Smith, and each of us, you know, have our key roles, and each of us take up a night of ministry too. So I focus high, on high school. Dave does the kindergarten through fifth. Paul does over eighteen. But really, we all do everything. Yeah. Like we all try to just pour in and meet with staff, and then meet with the kids. And man, it's just go, 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 Georgie. <laughs> and even right now, to be quite honest, I mean, I'm, I'm spent. I mean, that's, and that's the way it should be. I mean, we're, it's tiring. It's hard, and it should be that way, right? Cause, yeah. Cause that's it. That's life in, on this side of the kingdom. This isn't heaven. And we're talking and about I, eternal and, things. Yeah, totally. I've had three guys die. Let's see. Let's see. We had three three people die in one year. We had two staff and a, and a kid that overdosed. I mean, mm. that, was, that was our year, you know? And, I mean, it's the saddest stuff, you know, sometimes yeah. You, yeah. when you hear about some of these guys' lives, you know, and um, yeah, my my first my first year at Skate so I've only been on staff for five years, I was like three months in, had a young boy die in a car accident, he got in, and they were all drinking, and uh, they flipped over there on the 205, and he was the, the one guy out of five in the vehicle, he got launched, and he, he passed away. I still remember him hearing me every night, you know, as, as I would share the gospel, he would just come up and fist bump me and say, hey, good speech, Tim, you know, good mm. speech. Wow. Mm, mm. I look at him and, I, and my heart, Georgine, to be quite honest, I just hope it was more than a speech. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. I hope that he really, you never know. I never know. I'm glad I don't know. But anyway, it's. But it's what you do like know that. is this kid heard the gospel. What he God did in his heart, gospel. we don't know, but he heard the gospel. Now, I, I want to seize on one of the things that you said just a moment ago. Skate Church, you are supported by some of the local churches and, of course, generous donors, but you all aren't receiving funding from anywhere else. For those who are interested in considering uh, helping to underwrite and support what you do, what's the best way for them to go about that? Yeah, you go, yeah, go on skatechurch.net. Um, just push, hit, click donate, and then you'll see the drop-down screen. We do everything through push pay which is secure and safe, and it's a good way to support Skate Church, yeah. You can give to our general fund. We have a missions over in the Dominican Republic. Uh, one of the guys that came to Christ at Skate Church back in the 90s is now a missionary of ours over in the DR, uh, doing a skateboard ministry as well. And then me, Paul, and Dave, we're all individually supported. We take nothing from the general fund. And the reason for that is we always want the lights to be kept on. Yeah. If something were to happen to us, you know, I've already raised up the next guy who can take my place and do, and do the work. And that's the way it should be, right? That's that's ministry. And so, yeah, it's yeah, that's that's the best way to give. Just go to skatechurch.net. Um, if this wasn't clear, you'll get more clear. <laughs> you'll get clear info <laughs> through our website communication. Well, you're and, very uh, clear, and uh, but I do find that the website is very helpful in just getting a a good uh, understanding of the work that you all are doing. This is serious, life changing stuff. I also wanted to mention you you have a, a the fourth annual instructional skate camp. Uh, coming up. That kicks off on Monday, and uh, I know space is limited. There might be a few more spaces available. Can you tell us about that? And if folks are interested in learning more, you can find more at the uh, at the website. Yeah. Hey, Georgie, that actually, that was a month, so that actually took place last month. I don't know if we have, we might not have oh. that part of the site. <laughs> yeah. but, but it was great. It was awesome. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> so I guess I can't sign up then. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, you, you, you can't come, you can't come to camp. Yeah, so we do that in, in June, and that's been a success. Again, that, that's all credit to Dave Smith. I mean, we got, he's just 
greatest development uh, communications guys. Just, yeah, he, he's awesome. We love Dave. So Dave, uh, yeah, Dave initiated the camp uh, five years ago and uh, yeah, they're still going. Well, let me yeah. just say how much I appreciate you and Dave and Paul and the volunteers and others who are supporting and working with Skate Church. This is a significant ministry. And while it may be challenging for the, the average person to think seriously about the potential of reaching uh, young people whose lives center around skating, uh, that this is an outreach that is like any other missionary outreach, a people group that is distinct in a, a variety of ways. I want to commend you for your faithfulness, for your seriousness in bringing the, cost, uh, the gospel to a population that otherwise might not have any exposure at all. And I want to encourage our listeners to take the time to explore uh, more about Skate Church. It may be a ministry that you uh, want to support. And again, that website is skatechurch.net. Uh, Tim, I appreciate your taking the time to talk with us, and we need to keep in touch more often so people are uh, reminded to pray for and to support and to send kids to this ministry who might uh, need to hear the gospel. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it so much. Bye-bye. Again, uh, Tim Byrne, urban missionary, pastor, itinerant uh, evangelist, raising his own support and uh, having a significant impact on the lives of uh, young people in our community who otherwise might not have access to or any connection with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. One of the columnists I especially enjoy is David French writing for National Review. And he recently, this was actually mid-June, but I wanted to share with you a column that he wrote titled Two Painful Truths of America's Religious Culture War, in which he takes a look at both sides in the conflict. He writes, secular government is breaking its promise of liberty and the American church is breaking its promise of virtue. The fundamental founding structure of our American nation is relatively simple. While the federal government should seek the common good, its first responsibility is to secure the liberty of its citizens. Conversely, while citizens should seek to influence their nation through government, their first responsibility is to exercise their liberty toward virtuous ends. This is the essence of the ordered liberty envisioned by the founders. Government protects our unalienable rights, yet at the same time, our Constitution is made for a moral and religious people and is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Now, failure on either end, failure of the government to protect liberty or failure of the people to be virtuous, breaks the compact and places unacceptable strains on our nation and culture. As Christian communities face increasing government hostility and struggle with declining church attendance, it's time for both sides of our nation's religious culture war to confront their role in disrupting this core principles of the American founding. Here are two painful truths. Secular government is breaking its promise of liberty. And the American church is breaking its promise of virtue. First, the mainly progressive effort to restrict the free exercise of religion is plainly illiberal and contrary to the constitutional order. If there is one single legal strand that ties together the myriad threats to religious liberty and free speech in the United States, efforts to coerce Catholic uh, hospitals and adoption agencies into violating their convictions to toss Christian student groups off campus, to force Christian institutions to facilitate access to abortifacients, to compel the speech of Christian creative professionals, or to place in doubt the accreditation and tax exemptions of Christian educational institutions. If that's, um, or rather, it's that they depend on their, for their success, on inverting the proper constitutional order. 
progressive government passes sweeping and intrusive statutes and regulations and then treats the free exercise and free speech claims of religious individuals and institutions as a form of special pleading. Yet the, this gets the legal hierarchy upside down. The Constitution, including the First Amendment, of course, is the supreme law of the land, and statutes and regulations are making claims against it. Thus, the default position is that free speech, free exercise, and voluntary association enjoy protection, with that protection to fall away only in the face of compelling government interests enacted through the least restrictive means. Efforts to chip away at this default structure aim to disrupt the primacy of liberty and the legal primacy of the Constitution. So when people of faith decry attacks on religious freedom, they're not merely an interest group seeking accommodation. They're citizens seeking to maintain the core principles of the American founding. This brings us to the second truth. Even while religious conservatives are right to fight for their liberties, we need to understand that no government or cultural institution is more responsible for the decline of the church than the church itself. All too often, all too many Christians look at falling Sunday school attendance, attendance rather, and increasing faithlessness and lash out at Hollywood, at academia, or at To take a recent example, Drag Queen Story Hour. Instead, we should be more focused on lashing in at hypocrisy, at adultery, at abuse, and all the sins besetting our nation's congregations. Drag Queen Story Hours could populate our libraries from coast to coast, and they would do far less damage to American Christianity than the continued proliferation of the Catholic Protestant abuse crisis. Not one Christian parent has to take his or her child to see a drag queen at a library, but all too many Christian parents have had to explain the moral collapse of pastors and church leaders to their kids. All too many Christian wives have had to deal with the devastation of a husband addicted to porn, and all too many Christian spouses have had to pick up the pieces after infidelity and divorce. Even worse, we often do the opposite of the thing that Paul commanded— We are oh so understanding of our own failings, while oh so intolerant of the world's sins. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9 through 12 are among the least observed and most defied verses in the Bible. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning that sexually immoral uh, immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the uh, out. Uh, of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as, is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. But what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Paul writes. Well, he wrote those words from within a depraved Roman culture, a world that was replete with temptations of the flesh. And while he did not ignore the world's sins, his disciplinary focus was inward, even as his evangelistic focus was outward. Wise members of the church are beginning to recognize this truth. Earlier this year, the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, no slouch in the defense of Christian freedom, decided to change the focus of its annual conference to examine the crisis of sex abuse in the church. He says that his, uh, the writer of the article uh, says that his wife publicly discussed her own experience of childhood sexual abuse at the hands of a youth pastor, and that dreadful event had more adverse impact on her faith than any secular academic class ever could. If we want the church to thrive, we should protect liberty, and that means progressive governments should be held accountable under law for their illiberal attacks on free speech. But absent our own faithlessness, every legal or political victory will be for naught. 
We'll continue to bleed members, lose our witness, and close our doors. Our true challenge lies not with the drag queens without, uh, without, but rather with the adulterers and abusers within. It is a stinging rebuke, but it is one that is oh so true, uh, that there are two sides to the culture wars, and we have not always remained faithful to the side that we have been given as ambassadors of Christ. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Jack Alexander. And again, just want to remind you that was written by um, David French in National Review. If you'd like to check that out, Two Painful Truths of America's Religious Culture War. Again, tomorrow we'll talk with Jack Alexander, The Mercy Journey. It's published by Reimagine Barna. It's a study that gives us a glimpse into the challenge we face in sharing the gospel in the culture God has placed us in. I want to thank James Blinn for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.